basically, you know, it's kind of been status quo for a while on the coronavirus. Uh, we've seen increases in many states, then decreases. Uh, the caseload has basically um, gone from the Northeast, then it went to the South, then through the Midwest, and then it has come back around again uh, to many, many places. So essentially, because our president, as the Woodward tapes showed, basically either is a sociopath, which I think there's plenty of evidence for that, or just really dumb, uh, thinks that you could just send people back to school, reopen offices, all that with no issue, even though we don't have a vaccine. So we're already seeing, at least in New York, an increase in cases. They're also seeing an increase in cases in 11 states. Uh, I, I think the jury is still out. Uh, I think it's going to require a little bit more time to see after labor, what the effects of Labor Day was when everybody was gathering. Uh, when you look at these Trump super spreader events, uh, including his, I, I, frank, I frankly think, criminal rally yesterday in Nevada indoors, very few people wearing masks, I think we probably are on the cusp of seeing a massive increase around the country. And I just spoke with my aunt uh, yesterday, my aunt's a teacher, and judging by anecdotal, one story, I would tell you, I don't think the proper protocols are in place for schools reopening at all, in, at least in New York, so I can imagine countrywide. I'm not gonna blow up my aunt's spot, but what she told me about the school she is about to go back to is pretty horrifying. And it's really not if, it's just when the cases explode. With all this going on, all we've been hearing about is, all right, we just gotta wait. We just gotta wait till that vaccine. Almost like the vaccine is the, you know, magic elixir that's gonna fix this. And it's, by the way, we're not just talking about the health consequences, we're talking about the looming depression that I think we already have economic depression-like um, conditions going on. We don't see bread lines everywhere, but you're starting to see a lot longer lines at food banks around the country. Um, you're seeing a lot more people trying to get on Medicaid. Uh, and as I've reported, the within the jobs reports that the corporate media tried to spin as improving, because the overall number went down, the permanent job loss is increasing within those numbers. So you got the health aspect and the economic health aspect. Then we got this today. Race to identify a safe and effective COVID vaccine goes on. A warning today from the largest vaccine maker in the world. If people need two doses to be fully immunized, there will not be enough to go around to all of us until 2024. Let's start there with senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Uh, she is with me. And so, you know, these were comments, Elizabeth, they were made by the CEO of the Serum Institute in India uh, in this interview with the Financial Times. What is this CEO seeing that obviously has him so concerned? And then how many doses does he think could be needed worldwide? So I'm going to take the second one first, if that's okay, Brooke. Brooke, we know that the most, if not nearly all of the vaccines that are being tested uh, for COVID-19 are two doses. The three, for example, that are in phase three clinical trials in the U.S., those are all 
two dose vaccines. You get one dose and then about three or four weeks later, you get a second dose. So we it's, it's a pretty good guess that what we end the, the, the vaccines that end up working will be two doses. And what this manufacturer is saying is, look, we can't just snap our fingers and make those. It is going to take time. This is an unprecedented ask to produce vaccine for basically the entire world on very short notice. And Brooke, we, we, you and I have talked about this before, that two doses is a big deal. It's double everything, not just the vaccine, set that aside. It's two sets of syringes, two sets of vials, two sets of everything, which sounds so small, right? Oh, so syringes, needles, they're everywhere. Well, look what happened with testing. That got delayed. Look what happened with PPE. That got delayed. And we have more of a lead time now than we did for, on those two items. But still, we have seen that producing these things, manufacturing them, getting them into gear is not instantaneous. It does take a while to get that supply chain going. Brooke? Which would make sense then that everyone couldn't get this if it's a, if it's a two for basically until, you know, four years from now, three years from now. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you. Let's get some uh, medical perspective on all of this. Dr. Lena Wynn is a CNN medical analyst and the former Baltimore health commissioner. And so, Dr. Wynn, when you hear this, that it could take, you know, four or five years to vaccinate everyone on the planet, that is, if those two doses are required for this COVID vaccine, what do you make of that? I'm not surprised because we're talking about 15 billion doses that have to be distributed. And in the U.S. alone, hundreds of millions of doses distributed twice. And that's not taking into account that maybe this is a vaccine that we have to be giving every year, like the flu vaccine. And so we should be looking at the vaccine and the approval of the vaccine as a beginning. It is certainly not a silver bullet. We should be looking at how can we live with this virus, including with all these hygiene measures that we keep on talking about, the hand washing, mask wearing, social distancing, that's going to continue for the foreseeable future, even if we do have a safe and effective vaccine that's approved. Question, if it is two doses, and I'm no doctor, you are, so you get to answer this, would it be like a one, two, bang, you're done with your, with your two doses, or is it come once, get one, and then come six weeks later and get the second? It's the latter. There is going to be a separation probably for a few weeks or a month. And so this is another reason why we have to get all of our coordination up to par. All the issues that Elizabeth mentioned with the syringes, the, um, the vials, all these supplies. But also we need to make sure that people can literally go to places, whether it's the pharmacy or their doctor's office, to get all of these shots. As we're going to discuss uh, in the next story, because as the Russiagate turns, there's more Russiagate BS out there that we need to debunk. As, as I'm going to discuss with that, I often don't just lazily, breath, breathlessly, um, on faith, uh, just believe whatever the government tells me, whatever CNN tells me, whatever Big Pharma tells me, uh, whatever intelligence agencies tell me, you know, I want evidence. However, in this case, it makes sense. You know, I saw somebody in the super chat saying uh, this is not big news, you know, this was already known. Eh, yes and no, because most of the uh, most of the talk and narrative about coronavirus has been essentially we just got to tread water. We just got to, you know, stay afloat, you know, kind of manage uh, the pandemic um, until we get a vaccine. Most of it has been focused on Everything will be a lot better when we have a vaccine. There hasn't been as, as much examination on, okay, when that vaccine comes, how quickly could every American get it? 
Um, how many doses do you need? Like we just saw at the end, what would be the lag time between first dose and second dose? That has not been explored. So there's been different estimates. Obviously, Trump, with his nonsense that we're going to have a vaccine like in two weeks, you know, it's constantly been moved up because obviously he looks at this as I got to say whatever I got to say to get reelected. Um, but Fauci has kind of tempered it maybe early 2021, mid 2021. But I think what this new proclamation by the top vaccine maker is saying is not just in America, but worldwide, you're not going to get uh, everybody vaccinated um, until 2024. And when I say everyone, uh, that includes America because America, frankly, unlike other countries, most civilized countries, we have a for-profit healthcare system, which means they could all tell you that the vaccine will be free, but that doesn't mean it's going to be free. In Germany, it will be free. In France, it will be free. In London, it will be free. In fill in the blank, Israel, uh, other countries with that boogeyman of socialized medicine, it will be free. In America, it will not be free. And although uh, I remember during the Democratic primary debates, Joe Biden saying all, all, all care related to coronavirus will be free. Uh, all you got to do is Google it. There's been horror stories about people with coronavirus leaving the hospital after a week or two weeks with million dollar tabs for that free health care related to coronavirus. There's also been people that have been charged for testing. So it's not universally free. Why this is so damning is if we don't get a vaccine, even after we get a vaccine, um, we're going to basically continue to have this merry-go-round of cases surging, cases receding in some states, cases, cases surging, cases receding in some states. And even if Joe Biden becomes president, Joe Biden answers to not the science, but the donors. That's the facts. He could say and talk about answering to the science, but at the end of the day, he's answering to Wall Street, okay? He's answering to big pharma, he's answering to big real estate, he's answering to the real bosses of this corporation, the United Corporations of America. So I highly, highly doubt Joe Biden is going to do radically different from what Trump's doing now. I think he will focus more on uh, preventative measures for contracting coronavirus, universal mask wearing, uh, more sanit sanit sanitizing, more social distancing. He's not going to be doing, if he were president, indoor rallies with no masks. That I'll give him. He'll be a lot smarter about that. However, if this is dragging out possibly to 2023, 2024, without a vaccine for all Americans, uh, I think what you're seeing now as far as the economic uh, devastation. And I don't care if the unemployment number says 8.4%. The real unemployment number, Google the difference between unemployment and real unemployment, is still above 10%. Again, the permanent job losses within that unemployment report are increasing. This is only, if there is no vaccine for longer, it's only going to expedite uh, the automation economy, as Andrew Yang talked about, the jobless economy. And the real danger here is 
obviously if it's Trump and this is dragged out for several years, we have the danger of him pretending that's not the case, of him pretending even if most Americans aren't getting the vaccine yet, him claiming that all Americans are getting the vaccine and let's say 50 million Americans have been vaccinated. If Trump wins re-election, he'll say 120, 150 million have been vaccinated. We're almost there. So up is down, side, you know, uh, real is fake uh, when it comes to Trump. But with Biden, if you don't have the majority of Americans being able to be vaccinated basically for another four years, um, what does that mean in terms of health care? What does that mean in terms of jobs? What does that mean in terms of um, income inequality? We're already seeing, I mean, this is just from the New York Times, we're already seeing uh, big healthcare companies cashing in huge profits for big pharma during the pandemic. So it really, really says to me, um, number one, if you got people who are not going to the hospital or going to the doctor to get tested to see if they have coronavirus because they don't have health care and they don't want to get charged or they have fear that they're going to get charged. How are you going to get those people to go get a vaccine if it's not guaranteed that it will be free? That's number one. Number two, again, the employers will have a built in excuse without a universal national vaccine for another four years to continue uh, keeping those jo- jobs that were cut permanently cut. Uh, they will have a universal excuse to reduce people's hours and keep cutting hours. They will have a universal excuse to start rolling back benefits. They'll say there's no vaccine. And you think Joe Biden's going to do anything about that? You think Joe Biden's going to say, all right, this is going on much longer than we thought. So we're going to have to do Medicare for all. Discussion closed. I was against Medicare for all in a pre-COVID uh, world. But if the majority of the country will not be vaccinated for four more years. You know, Obamacare is not enough. You think that's coming? No. You know, I took a mental health break last week. I was a little burnt out, so I didn't get to cover uh, the raging wildfires going on in California right now. Uh, Unfortunately, the wildfires in California are not super new, but they are accelerating. They are getting worse. The images out of California it's also spread into Oregon, um, are horrifying. Uh, People, I think 23 people have died in the last two weeks uh, from the wildfires in California. Uh, People losing their homes. Uh, Just imagine the terror uh, of being engulfed uh, in your town or your home in fire. Um, President Trump is basically providing no leadership. Uh, this is not just a short-term thing. This is a long-term thing because the president of the United Corporations of America doesn't believe in uh, climate change or he's either being willfully ignorant uh, or he's just a moron. I think it's a mix of both. Clearly, uh, you know, wildfires happen in many places in the world, from California to Australia. Uh, in some cases, it's good. Uh, in some cases, wildfires uh, help um, clear out dead, uh, you know, trees and brush and, you know, that kind of stuff from forests. Uh, but in, it's not so good if it's not happening in seasons anymore, but year round. And it's also not good if because of the climate change, uh, accelerated winds and, uh, 
wet season coming later is causing them to be intensified. So that's what's going on in California. You've had years of drought in the mid 2010s, and you also have, I mean, unquestionable higher temperatures, uh, and those higher temperatures are leading, the higher temperatures are the spark. Those are the spark uh, for, for the fuel, and the fuel is the trees, is the brush, is the grass, uh, is basically anything that's flammable. So basically, Trump's response to this has been, you know, unsurprisingly ridiculous. Uh, Trump interrupted a Western campaign today uh, to go to California to review the wildfire damage and renew his argument with state and local officials about what he says is the main cause of the fires that have claimed the lives of at least 35 people this month. While government officials and scientists identified climate change as the primary culprit behind the intense wildfires, Trump insisted during a briefing in Northern Carolina that, uh, Northern California, that, quote, forest management is more to blame. When trees fall down after a short period of time, they become very dry, really like a matchstick, and they could explode, Trump said as he and others breathed in the smoky, hazy air near Sacramento. Of course, again, you don't know if he's being willfully ignorant or he's just a moron. Uh, when he says, uh, during dry conditions, why, why are the dry conditions lasting so much longer? Why is California's uh, wet season coming basically a month later? Because summer is supposed to be dry, but California was having drought basically in every season for many years during the 2010s. This is because of climate change. So again, either a moron, willfully ignorant, whatever, he's dangerous. And he's, Donald Trump is really the match. Uh, and the Republican Party, I should say, is really the match for disastrous climate change and the disastrous climate crisis, which should be treated the same exact way um, as the, the coronavirus pandemic. Because long term, it's going to kill more people than the coronavirus will kill. Not that the coronavirus deaths are insignificant. And, full to, and to be clear, this is not whataboutism. Donald Trump, I'm not a fan of Joe Biden, but reality is reality. Donald Trump is much, much worse than Joe Biden on the environment. With that said, I think we're fooling ourselves. And frankly, if you're buying the bullshit Joe Biden is selling, uh, really what you're talking about is the difference between uh, more immediate planetary destruction and immediate death and destruction versus a slower burn of planetary destruction and death and destruction. Biden today uh, in Delaware in front of Brush, which was, I guess, symbolic, uh, talked about, um, like many other things, tossing out, and, and I'm sorry to say, um, I, I don't think Biden is writing most of these speeches. I don't even think his policy is necessarily coming from him. I think he's got peace, people around him uh, telling him uh, and putting in certain things in these policies. However, Biden is promising a lot of things, you know, or uh, aggressive uh, shift to um, electric cars. We're going to give rebates for you to buy electric cars. We're going to uh, really double down on wind, renewables, solar. That's great. All those things I agree with. However, he's talking about Donald Trump being a, a climate arsonist, which is true. Um, but 
what he's what pe- what the media is not reporting is regardless of what Donald Trump regardless excuse me regardless of what Joe Biden uh, is says he's going to do in the positive none of those things will make the difference that's needed to be made if he does not ban fracking and when I hear him and I watched his whole speech today when I hear him say these things it's almost like you know if you're in a relationship where the you got a really uh, convincing um, sleaze bag of a boyfriend or girlfriend you know they verbally is they verbally abuse you uh, they take you for granted uh, they flirt with other women or men uh, but for that 10% of the time, they know how to sweet talk you. That 10% of the time, they're really, really good at romancing you and being attentive and affectionate. So that kind of keeps you going when the 90% of the time, they're unreliable and not doing the right thing. This is really what you're getting from Joe Biden on climate change. I mean, here's one example. This is him during his speech. By increasing energy efficiency and by reducing the racial wealth gap linked to home ownership. There are thousands of oil and natural gas wells that oil companies and gas companies have abandoned, many of which are leaking toxins. We can create 250,000 jobs now by just plugging those wells right away. Good union jobs for energy workers. This will help sustain communities and protect them from the environmental damage as well. We'll also create new markets for our family farmers and ranchers. We'll launch a new modern civilian climate core. So does anybody here, if you know what you're talking about in terms of cli- the climate crisis, global warming, all that stuff, Joe Biden in one breath, and he's saying a lot of good things. I'll give him credit. He's saying a lot of good things about electric, uh, giving rebates uh, and tax credits if you buy electric, which China has been doing for years, um, talking, you know, up wind, renewable, yada, yada, you know, Um, electric transit, a lot of what he's saying is positive. However, in one breath, he's talking about creating 250,000 jobs by finding all the abandoned wells around the country that are, most of them fracked gas wells, by the way, and plugging the leaks because most of them are leaking, leaking toxins into the air. So right there, he's acknowledging that leaking gas or leaking oil or leaking uh, waste products from the fracking process, dirty water, because you need a lot of water with fracking. Fracking's waste products are toxins. He just said it. So how in one breath can you be talking about we could create millions of jobs by doing the necessary thing, plugging leaks at wells all around the country, which I agree with doing, but on the other end, not being against banning fracking. And by the way, for those in the back who claim, because I've seen this argument on the interweb, Jordan, the president doesn't have the power to ban fracking on private land. They could only do it on public land. 
you know, when, when the President of the United States takes an interest or has the will, yeah, you wait how fast fracking can be banned on private lands. Or if legally a president can ban fracking on private lands, a president certainly could add so much regulation to the point it's economically impossible to frack on private lands and make a profit. So you could either, if you can't ban it, you could certainly make it that fracking is just not economically possible for those mother frackers. Excuse my French. I've covered a lot of pipelines. Any fracked gas pipeline and, cr and crude oil pipelines, every one of them has leaks. Some are massive leaks that you actually see in the news, even though the oil companies lie about how many gallons leaked. And then there's just the everyday micro leaks that happen by sheer uh, fact of these are high pressured uh, natural gas pipelines. Um, they don't always get the pressuring right, which happens through compressor stations. Uh, just by the act of fracking and, and, and fracking to get the oil and gas, the earth actually moves. I learned this uh, a couple years ago when I was reporting in Virginia on the Mountain Valley Pipeline with Jen. Uh, and through the earth moving, you have more and more leaks. It's not only that they're leaking into the air, which is the methane release. Methane, you have different estimates, but methane is estimated to be 30 to 60 times more hazardous and potent than carbon dioxide, which for a long time was considered uh, the, the worst of the worst in terms of greenhouse gases. Methane, which is emitted through natural gas, is worse. So you tell me, uh, in one breath, Joe Biden is talking about we got to hire people to plug the holes, uh, plug the leaks in wells, which is good. That's wonderful. But where do we have more leaks coming from? The wells or the frack gas pipelines that you're not doing anything about because you and the idiots around you think, well, we can't lose those blue collar people in, in Pennsylvania or Michigan you know, or Ohio or Wisconsin. The, the issue is when media and journalists, which I use loosely, uh, elevate this to Pearl Harbor, which some have, and to a grave attack and threat on our democracy. What that, what that is meant to do, particularly on cable news, which skews to an older audience, is it's all meant to distract us from reality. And reality is this. That's reality. That is where your money has gone for the last 40 years. It's all gone to the yacht owners, to the Chamber of Commerce, to the real estate developers, to the fossil fuel executives, to the big pharma executives, to the Wall Street financiers, and the politicians that enable and, and uh, are accomplices to them all. That is all of the money hoarding to the top with the rest of the money going, our money going all the way down, that is still 2015, so it's probably way worse. Accompanied with productivity skyrocketing, us, while that productivity is only, that's why that red line is going up, because of that blue line, the productivity, whereas our hourly compensation, essentially static, frozen in time. So how do you distract people from that? 
objectively, if the biggest political machine in, tw- in political American political history, the Clintons, maybe other than the Kennedys, what was a bigger machine, loses to a game show host, objectively, maybe media, a Democratic Party, think tanks, the whole revolving door might examine, wow, maybe there's a real outcry, maybe there's a real rebellion in this country against neoliberalism, against incrementalism, against the public-private partnership model, against, you know, the toxic influence of money in politics. Maybe there's a populist revolt growing in our jobs being offshore to foreign countries for the last 30 years. Maybe we need to shift our policies, shift the way we raise money and fund campaigns so that we could start winning again. But that didn't happen in 2016. That didn't happen in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. It's become a never-ending red scare. And I always fight with certain people in my life saying, you are indulging and drinking the Kool-Aid of this steady propaganda. Again, that doesn't mean Russia is not trying to quote-unquote interfere through fake Facebook pages, through um, propaganda online, the bots, all these things. But when it becomes this 24-7 hysterical overreaction, that's when you see stories that are easily, easily debunked. And more importantly, a never-ending narrative that forms that is meant to distract us so we don't have to actually report or focus on any of the economic realities of capitalism. And here we have just one more example, folks. This came out today. U.S. commander, Intel still hasn't established Russia paid Taliban bounties to kill U.S. troops. Quote, It just has not been proved to a level of certainty that satisfies me, General Frank McKenzie told NBC News. McKenzie oversees the U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Well, you don't say. And this is a credit to this commander for even acknowledging this. I was kind of surprised to see it. Two months after top Pentagon officials vowed to get to the bottom of whether the Russian government bribed the Taliban to kill American service members, the commander of troops in the region says a detailed review of all available intelligence has not been able to corroborate the existence of such a program. Quote, it just has not been proved to a level of certainty that satisfies me. General Frank McKenzie, commander of the U.S. Central Command, told NBC News. McKenzie oversees U.S. troops in Afghanistan. The U.S. continues to hunt for new information on the matter. This really reminds me, I mean, obviously it's not the same thing, but this really reminds me of when we went to war in Iraq citing weapons of mass destruction, and then after we launched the troops and after the war started, you heard things from generals, the Bush administration, and others saying, yeah, yeah, we're still looking for the weapons. We're we're still inspecting, you know, to get confirmation. Quote, we continue to look for that evidence, the general said. I just haven't seen it yet, but it's not a closed issue. This, this part really, really is precious. McKenzie's comments reflecting a consensus view among military leaders underscores the lack of certainty around a keyword, let me highlight this, a narrative 
that has been accepted as fact by Democrats and other Trump critics, including presidential nominee Joe Biden, who has cited Russian bounties in attacks on President Donald Trump. So this is important. I want to show you one of the bylines on this story. Bylines just means authors. Ken Delanian. Ken Delanian is a former, uh, Jen, if you could check me on it, I think he worked for the FBI, maybe Homeland Security. I'm not sure which one. Formerly worked uh, in intelligence, now a quote-unquote journalist. He has pushed a lot of these Russiagate stories. So Mr. Delanian, in this piece, writes, Mackenzie's comments reflect a consensus view among military leaders, underscoring the lack of certainty around a narrative that has been accepted as facts by Democrats and other Trump critics. Well, how exactly did that narrative that Russia had literally been paying bounties to uh, the Taliban to kill American soldiers, how does that narrative start for the Democratic Party and Trump critics to start picking it up? I don't know. Maybe people like Ken Delanian? This is from June. An official familiar with the intelligence tells me it shows that American service members and Afghan civilians died as a result of bounties paid by the Russians. But many national security officials, not politicals, continue to downplay this intel. So many unanswered questions. Oh, you gotta love it. You gotta love it. Former, uh, Jen just sent it to me, hold on. Uh, oh, this guy used to work for the CIA. Here's a story from The Intercept, the LA Times, hold on. The CIA's mop-up man, LA Times reporter cleared stories with agency before publication. This is when this guy was at the CIA. So he basically, before he got to NBC, uh, would basically have the CIA approve his stories. I mean, you don't send your stories to the CIA or anybody. I mean, in the past, I've sent, hey, I'm hearing this. What do you have to say? Do you have a comment? Or, hey, I'm just checking. Is this the number of X, Y, and Z? But I would never send like full on, like full on story to people that are the subject of the story before publishing it. That's not journalism, that's politics. So I just find it incredible that in this story on NBC News, because essentially commanders have been coming out saying, uh, hold the phone, there's, there's no like actual evidence that Russia paid the Taliban to kill American troops, which Biden has used in speeches and emails. NBC has gone 24-7 hysterical, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, CNN. He has the cojones to talk about the narrative that's been formed when he's the one that created the narrative in the first place. You could be wrong about a story. You could, your sources could lead you wrong. It's happened to me before. You could just make an honest mistake. It, that's life, that's journalism, and you correct it. But this is, these are not honest mistakes. These are people like Ken Delanian literally reporting just shit he's told by people in the CIA or NSA or Homeland Security or whatever. Yeah, he kind of straddles the line. I'm being told this by U.S. intelligence, but some officials don't, don't, you know, 
are downplaying it, so many unanswered questions, then why are you reporting it? If you don't know for sure, if you haven't seen any documents that actually provide any conclusive evidence, you know, did, did you find communications between uh, Russia and the Taliban? Did you find money transactions, wirings, you know, in, in the old days of journalism, actual evidence? It's, it's unbelievable. And, and again, you know, this isn't Watergate, but the point is by these constant stories on Russia. And again, this isn't because like I'm defending Donald Trump. Do I think Donald Trump uh, has a soft spot for Putin? I certainly do, because I think he likes authoritarian leaders. I also think possible Donald Trump has a soft spot for Putin because Donald Trump has been laundering money since the 1980s through the mafia, including Russian sources. So yeah, I, I would have a soft spot too if I don't want that exposed by Putin. I also think, frankly, Donald Trump cares about Donald Trump. He ain't gonna be president forever. If you actually Google it and look it up, a lot of Donald Trump's um, real estate sales are with Russian oligarchs. So, you know, not that that's an innocent explanation, but there was always another side, which was never actually discussed, of why Donald Trump would be so deferential to Vladimir Putin. Just like he's so defer deferential to Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. He cares about himself and his business interests. NATSEC national security. So it's just incredible because this, NB and it's not just this NBC reporter. Essentially what we've had for four or five years is essentially reporters with their sources in the CIA, FBI, who feed them stuff. But what this does, this constant Russiagate, it does many things. Number one, it keeps older voters, because older voters and older people generally watch CNN and MSNBC. Not all older people, as I always say, a lot of progressives are older. Our audience have a lot of older people, we love you. But by the numbers, the people watching MSNBC and CNN are not younger people. They are above the age of 60 in most cases. It keeps them numb. It keeps them thinking, oh, no, Hillary didn't lose because, you know, moderate, moderates and, you know, conservative Democrats and neoliberalism has gone out of style. Hillary didn't lose because uh, people are tired of crumbs. Hillary didn't lose because, you know, People are getting sick and rebelling against capitalism. People uh, are tired of all the money being given to Wall Street vultures. No, it's because of Russia. They stole the election. And we're already seeing that excuse and rationalization starting to uh, be preemptively put in place if Biden loses. Kamala Harris, in an interview, just said Russia's already interfering. And it came out recently that uh, Bernard privately has been telling the Biden campaign, uh, iceberg, iceberg, right ahead. Love that graphic, it never gets old. Uh, Bernie Sanders is privately expressing concerns about Joe Biden's presidential campaign according to three people with knowledge of the conversations and is urge, ur, urging Biden's team 
to intensify its focus on pocketbook issues and appeals to liberal voters. Sanders, the runner-up to Biden in the Democratic primaries, has told associates that Biden is at serious risk of coming up short in the November election if he continues uh, his vaguer, that's being generous, uh, more centrist approach, according to people, uh, according to the people who spoke on the condition of anonymity. Anonymity. So, let me explain how this works. Bernie's an altruistic guy, but, you know, Bernie knows politics. They leaked this to the Washington Post. They wanted this out there as kind of a FU to Biden. The senator has identified several specific changes he'd like to see, saying Biden should talk more about health care and about his economic plans and should campaign more with figures popular among young, young liberals like AOC. As for comment, Sanders' team provided a statement from Fez Shakir, the senator's uh, campaign manager in the presidential race, saying that Sanders is, quote, working as hard as he can to get Biden elected, but has advised some strategic adjustments. Quote, Senator Sanders is confident that Biden is in a very strong position to win the election, but nevertheless feels there are areas the campaign can continue to improve on, Shakir said. He has been in direct contact with the Biden team and has urged them to put more emphasis on how they will raise wages, thank you, create millions of good paying jobs, lower the cost of prescription drugs, and expand healthcare coverage. Shakir said Sanders also thinks that a stronger outreach to young people, the Latino community, and the progressive movement will be of real help to the campaign. You know, I don't think Bernie Sanders is doing this unless Bernie Sanders thinks there's a genuine chance Biden's gonna lose. If Bernie Sanders felt confident that Biden was gonna win, I don't think he's leaking this to the Washington Post. And by the way, this, this is what happens. I mean, Bernie's confidants aren't willy-nilly going to talk to the Washington Post unless he wants to get a point across. And there's a difference between privately getting a point, point across to the Biden campaign and making it go through in the media that gets them paying attention and frankly not happen. I think a few things. Number one, I think Bernie, I understand why he's being diplomatic. I understand why he's saying, oh, no, I think Biden's in a good position, blah, 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 blah. Because Bernie don't want to be blamed. Bernie don't want to be Ralph Nadered, you know? Uh, but at the end of the day, if Bernie thinks Donald Trump is an existential threat to the nation and that democracy itself is on the line and we got to elect Joe Biden and democracy is going down like the Titanic, I think he needs to raise the fire alarm a little louder so that people in the back could hear it. Uh, I'm happy that he leaked this to the Washington Post. He went on MSNBC. You know, he cleaned it up a little bit to be like, no, of course it's not true. But then cited all the things that Biden is doing wrong. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think the Biden, Biden or his campaign are going to listen to a damn thing Bernie says or the progressive movement says because they... They literally get a kick out of on the progressive movement. They literally have disdain for progressives. They have disdain for working people, frankly. They dress it up and pretend that Biden is a man of the working, uh, is a man of, you know, unions and is middle-class Joe and all this nonsense. He's not. I mean, his record is his record. I've gone through with it. I've gone through his record exhaustively here. But 
you don't want to give them the opportunity to blame it on you if he loses. And the way you do that is by screaming, you know, from the screaming from the rooftops, you're going to lose if you don't do these things. Because when he loses, that's when you say, I told you so. I said all these things loud and proud. I urged you to cater to X, Y, and Z. The numbers will be there to back it up. If Biden loses, it's going to be because the same reasons Hillary Clinton lost. He's not going to have uh, the black voters show up in the numbers he needs. He's not going to have the uh, Latinos show up in the numbers he needs. And he's not going to have age 18 to 29 show up in the numbers he needs. So if Bernie starts screaming it now, they can't do what they did in 2016 and blame him because he will have very credible I told you so points. Biden's not doing so hot among Latinos. Trump has, Trump is doing a, a significantly better than he did among Latinos in 2016. Trump is actually surprisingly, I think he's over 10% among black voters, Donald Trump. So I say, Bernie, don't, you know, I don't know the analogy, but it's good that you're kind of speaking up, but speak up a little louder. Because honestly, if they don't listen to you, then you have to start wondering, are they trying to actually win this election? Because people who want to win do whatever the hell it takes to win. They could see the data. I don't know what data they're looking at if they think in the two pots of voters that there's more voters in the moderate Republican pot than voters in the Latino, young black, young white, and progressive bucket. That's just, there's no data that supports that. There is, you know, they called Bernie's strategy in the primary naive, that he was gonna expand the electorate. It is naive to think you're going to suddenly convert, you know, millions of Republicans, moderate Republicans, which is not even a thing anymore, over to vote for Joe Biden. That is naive and suicidal, frankly. By the way, that's why it's even close in these battleground states, because they've taken this approach of catering to moderate Republicans, which is pretty much depressing interest, support, and it seems uh, we'll see about turnout among young people, young black people, young Latino, and independents that's lean towards the progressive side. So it's glad, I'm glad Bernie kind of came out of the political witness protection program a little bit. Uh, I'm glad that privately and then publicly kind of called out Biden on these things, but I'd like to hear it a little louder. So instead of saying, I'd like to hear him talk about healthcare a little more, how about saying, what is your plan? Because we heard him say, public option during the primary, notice in his speech during the DNC convention, he didn't mention the public option. All he talked about was expanding Obamacare. That's deliberate. He hasn't really been talking about healthcare much. I get his emails, I see his speeches, he ain't talking about it. It's Joe, give the people who've lost their jobs and have no healthcare, tell them what you're gonna do for them immediately. First 100 days, what are you going to do so that they have healthcare? so that it doesn't bankrupt them. Specifics, make it simple. What are you gonna do 
to hold corporations accountable that are laying people off and not bringing those jobs back. Yet, yet continue not to pay any taxes and give themselves bonuses to their CEOs. What are you going to do? Biden is vaguely referenced like a taxing or a penalty to companies that offshore jobs. Okay, that's a start. But what are you going to do to actually create the conditions so that we, they start actually creating jobs here? So we'll see. I am not holding my breath, but we, we shall see.